This meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee shall come to order. Uh, our topic today is advancing effective U.S. policy for strategic competition with China in the 21st century. Uh, Dr. Economy, uh, Mr. Shugart and Mr. Khan, thank you for joining us here this morning to explore one of the most consequential questions this committee will consider this year how to develop an effective strategy uh, to counter and manage the rise of China. The China of 2021 is not the China of 1971 or even the China of 2011. Uh, China today is challenging the United States and destabilizing the international community across every dimension of power, political, diplomatic, economic, innovation, military, and even cultural and with an alternative and deeply disturbing model for global governance. As I said before, I truly believe that China today, led by the Communist Party and propelled by Xi Jinping's hyper-nationalism, is unlike any challenge we have faced before as a nation. For decades, we have failed to comprehensively address China's growing reach. And while I have given the previous administration credit for getting the scope, scale, and urgency of the China challenge right, they seem to operate under the mistaken belief that just being confrontational was being the same thing as being competitive. Retrenchment from the global stage, withdrawing from international fora only to let China fill in the void, alienating our allies and partners, particularly in the region, only helped embolden China's efforts. Coercing its neighbors in the maritime domain, crushing Hong Kong, threatening Taiwan, increasing its trade surplus with the United States, racing ahead in the development of new digital technologies, a campaign of genocide on its Uyghur people, China today is more active and more assertive than ever before. There should be little doubt in my mind that the right basic framework for thinking about our relationship with China today is strategic competition. Not because that's necessarily what we want, but because of the choices Beijing is making. We need to be clear-eyed and sober about Beijing's intentions and actions and calibrate our policy and strategy accordingly. The United States needs a new strategic framework for this competition and a new set of organizing principles to address the challenges of this new era. One of these core organizing principles I would suggest is the importance of coordinating closely with our allies and partners to develop a shared and effective approach to China. Indeed, I think Secretary Blinken's and Austin's uh, have successfully started embracing this principle with their trip this week. And I believe that our China policy must be integral as we develop Indo-Pacific strategy. So I'm, see, I'm pleased to see that President Biden understands that our alliances, our partnerships, and the shared values on which they stand, and our reliability and resilience in the face of adversity are crucial for effective global leadership. Second, as we consider strategic competition with China, we must recognize that in the 21st century, the nature of our competition also revolves around geoeconomic matters, not just the geopolitical and military competition that characterize the 20th century. The most hotly contested domains are in the new and emergent suite of technologies, 5G, AI, quantum computing, nanotech, robotics, zero carbon energy technology, not just the traditional categories of blood and steel that have traditionally guided our national security thinking. If we fail to invest in our geoeconomic tools, 
if we fail to replenish the sources of our competitiveness here at home, we will find that while we still may dominate in the old domains and traditional measures of military power, the world has moved on and we will be left behind. Successfully doing so requires significant bipartisan political efforts. To that end, I appreciate that the ranking member has stated his desire to join forces to draft and mark up a strong bipartisan China bill. To accommodate his request for more time to achieve this shared objective, I have agreed to move the markup to April 14th, but we will have to work uh, during the recess to have the text finished and available to other committee members by the end of this work period. My expectation is that the text will be representative of the shared bipartisan space on China, and members will also have opportunities to shape the bill through the amendment process. Both he and I and many members of this committee have introduced bills and issued reports over the past several years addressing various aspects of this challenge. Now we need to act and adopt a comprehensive bipartisan bill that can provide a sustainable and durable framework for the years ahead. So I look forward to the opportunity to engage with our witnesses today in a genuine and substantive conversation about how we can work together to develop a comprehensive approach and strategy towards China, to reset our strategy and diplomacy, to reinvest and replenish the sources of national strength and competitiveness at home, to place our partnership and allies first, and that reflects our fundamental values as Americans. Let me turn to the distinguished ranking member, Senator Risch, for his opening statement. Senator Risch, I think you may be muted. Is it on now, Bob? Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you very well. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, let me pick up where you left off uh, on the bipartisan nature of this effort. Uh, there's, I think there's no uh, issue before this Congress that, uh, that demands and commands uh, bipartisan effort than the issue that we have in front of us. Uh, and uh, as you point out, a lot of us have uh, introduced bills uh, recently or in recent years addressing various parts of the China issue, and it's time to bring them all together, which is, of course, the effort that we're undertaking here. As most of us uh, in recent years have recognized, strategic competition with the People's Republic of China must be the United States' number one foreign policy priority. Challenges posed by the uh, Chinese Communist Party are urgent and we must act accordingly. We must also maintain U.S. political will for the long haul because these challenges will shape U.S. foreign policy and the international system for decades to come. Republicans and Democrats should work together to ensure that the U.S. and its government treats China as the top foreign policy priority and the Indo-Pacific as the priority region in terms of policy, resourcing, and personnel. To support these goals, congressional legislation must be truly bipartisan and driven by concrete and actionable steps that directly address the biggest threats we face from the PRC. Today's hearing will be important in shaping this committee's efforts, including by providing us with valuable ideas on several aspects of competition with China, 
political, economic, military, and technological. One of the important uh, uh, aspects or one of the important pieces of this puzzle as we go forward is partnerships. Uh, we know that we have allies uh, in the world who are anxious to join us in our uh, quest in this regard. Europe, of course, is a natural partner. And uh, I uh, put out a report uh, recently that uh, itemized things we can do with Europe and consult with our European partners. I know the administration uh, will do the same thing as we go forward. In addition to Europe, of course, we have other natural partners in the region that uh, will join us in our efforts to do the things that uh, we're setting out to do here. Last week, I reintroduced the Tr Strategic Act with several colleagues, which includes proposals to put the United States on a stronger path to win this competition. The chairman and I have talked about this and about his bill. We're going to work together to try to meld those together so that we have a uh, proposal that is truly bipartisan and uh, meets all of our ideas as to how we challenge. First, uh, the strategic bill challenges the unfair and illegal PRC economic practices that undermine U.S. businesses and international economic system based on free market growth. The strategic act focuses in particular on increased oversight of, China, of Chinese company behavior in U.S. capital markets and Chinese state-sponsored intellectual property theft. We're all aware of the many cases uh, that this has happened and uh, We've got to put an end to this. This legislation also addresses the CCP malign influence in our media, universities, and even government. We must ensure that our society remains open and free, but also resilient and aware of the ways in which the CCP attempts to suppress, influence, or steal information within the United States. The Strategic Act increases transparency around Chinese government funding of our universities and government-sponsored trips for government officials. Next, this act confronts the threat of a modernized and growing Chinese military. Its rapid expansion and modernization is shifting the balance of power in the Indo-Pacific. PLA is also becoming more active in other regions such as the Indian Ocean, Africa, and even the Western Hemisphere. The CCP plans to use its military to dominate the waters inside the first island chain and project power beyond to strengthen its ability to coerce Taiwan, uh, to unify with mainland and to bully its neighbors into accepting its excessive maritime claims. Such actions would be devastating to U.S. and allied interests in this vital region. We must ensure that the United States and its allies are appropriately resourced to meet this military challenge. I want to take this opportunity to express my concern about comments by unidentified administration officials in the media yesterday about Taiwan. Beijing's increased coercion and attempts to isolate Taiwan are the reason for seeing increased tensions, not engagement with uh, Taiwan by the United States. I'm especially disappointed to see comments like this right before the U.S.-China discussions in Alaska this week. The administration should clarify these statements if indeed they are truly the administration's position, since it's always difficult to tell when the media cites uh, unidentified officials. Having said that, it is important those, those statements are out there that the administration uh, speak to those uh, statements that have been made. Finally, the Strategic Act holds the CCP accountable for its appalling human rights abuses, including its ongoing genocide of the Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in Xinjiang, egregious human rights abuses in Tibet, 
and its obliteration of individual rights promised to the people of Hong Kong. Uh, oftentimes, the CCP uses new technologies to carry out these abuses. The international community cannot turn a blind eye to these human rights abuses. No truly great power undermines its own citizens, and the CCP must be held accountable for their conduct. These are just some of the pressing and important threats we face from the PRC, and I look forward to hearing from the witnesses on these important issues. I also look forward to working with my Democratic colleagues uh, to address these evolving challenge in uh, actionable and bipartisan manner. And I believe that the chairman and I will uh, continue to work in good faith in a bipartisan manner uh, to bring these matters before our committee, eventually before the Senate, uh, to reach a bipartisan uh, solution and uh, action to address these matters. So thank you, Senator Menendez. With that, I yield back. Thank you, Senator Risch. Let me turn to our witnesses now. Dr. Elizabeth Economy is a senior fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Dr. Economy is an acclaimed author and expert on Chinese domestic and foreign policy. Her most recent book, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State, was shortlisted for the Lionel Goldberg Prize. Mr. Tom Shugart is an adjunct senior fellow with the defense program at the Center for a New American Security. His research focuses on undersea warfare and maritime competition, military innovation and acquisition, and the broader military balance in the Indo-Pacific. And Mr. Sarif Khan is a research fellow at Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging uh, Technology. His research focuses on AI policy, semiconductor supply chains, China's semiconductor industry and U.S. trade policy, and his work has been featured in the Financial Times, the Washington Post, Fortune, and other outlets. With that, let me first turn to Dr. Economy. Your full statements will be included in the record. We ask you to summarize it in five minutes, more or less, uh, so that we can have a, a conversation with you. Dr. Economy. Uh, thank you very much, Chairman Menendez, uh, Ranking Member Rich, and other distinguished members of the committee. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak before you this morning on this critical issue of U.S. strategic competition with China. But when Xi Jinping was selected as General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party in 2012, he spoke of his Chinese dream and the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And while no one knew exactly what he meant at the time, I don't think anyone would have envisioned that his ambition was nothing less than a reordered world order. Yet over the past eight years, it has become clear that she seeks a transformed geostrategic landscape across four dimensions. First, by asserting sovereignty over Taiwan and the South China Sea, as well as over other contested territories, such as those with India and Japan. Second, by replacing the United States as the preeminent power in the Asia Pacific through Chinese military dominance and a network of regional agreements that excludes the United States. Third, by embedding Chinese political, economic, and technological preferences throughout the world via the Belt and Road Initiative, as well as through the leverage of its market. And fourth, by aligning international norms and values around human rights, internet governance, and technical standards with those of China. Xi's approach is long-term and strategic. He sets targets and timetables for achieving his objectives. He mobilizes actors from across the Chinese government, military, and the private sector. He structures political and economic incentives to induce outside actors to support Chinese objectives, and he pursues those objectives in multiple domains within China, in other countries, through the Belt and Road, and in global governance institutions. China has achieved notable success in realizing many of its strategic objectives, and much of the rest of the world now believes that China's rise and the U.S.'s decline are inexorable. 
Beijing's management of the COVID-19 pandemic, vaccine diplomacy, positive economic growth, technological leadership, and growing military prowess lend credibility to such a narrative. However, China's strategy also has significant vulnerabilities. In many respects, the same state control that contributes to Chinese success has also begun to limit the credibility and attraction of many Chinese initiatives. Chinese technology companies such as Huawei and ByteDance face growing constraints in accessing global markets as a result of CCP interference. Nordic countries that once welcomed PRC investment now scrutinize it for potential military applications. Many countries have closed their Confucius Institutes, which are perceived as vehicles for advancing a Chinese government political narrative. In addition, China's wolf warrior diplomacy, along with its egregious actions in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, have resulted in a backlash against China. Popular opinion polls throughout the Asia Pacific, for example, indicate significant distrust of Xi Jinping and little interest in Chinese regional leadership. And the Belt and Road has become bumpy as popular protests in host countries proliferate, deals are canceled and renegotiated. COVID-19 placed particular stress on Belt and Road deals with the Chinese government reporting that 60% had been adversely affected. The Trump administration was instrumental in drawing international attention to many of the risks of growing Chinese power and influence, and it put in place a number of policies to protect the United States from unfair and even malign Chinese economic and political activities. Yet to compete effectively with China, the Biden administration must move beyond the previous administration's more reactive and defensive strategy to assert a more positive and proactive message of U.S. leadership that contributes to advanced global prosperity and security. And as the interim national security strategy guidance suggests, and I outlined in my testimony, U.S. leadership should be firmly rooted in U.S. values, strong relations with allies and partners, and a robust presence in multilateral institutions. A good example of such leadership is the major new vaccine diplomacy initiative with Australia, Japan, and India that answers a humanitarian need, demonstrates the ability of democratic allies and partners to cooperate effectively, and provides an alternative to Chinese global vaccine diplomacy. Moving forward, the administration in Congress has a long list of priorities uh, that it needs to address with regard to China. China is a global challenge and is going to require a global response. Let me just mention four. First, we need to develop an economic pillar of engagement in the Asia Pacific. China is weaving a net of regional trade agreements and US companies will lose ground in the most economically dynamic region of the world if the administration and Congress don't find their way into the CPTPP or pursue a range of significant sectoral trade agreements. Second, the United States, as the chairman mentioned, needs to retool at home in the same way that we set clear objectives and targets for ensuring military preparedness that include research and development, manufacturing, the development of human capital and logistics, we need a technology policy that does the same. Third, to compete with, effectively with China, the United States must look beyond its traditional allies and partners to forge a new relationship with the world's developing economies. China's engagement in Africa and the Middle East, as well as Latin America and Southeast Asia, have provided fertile ground for Chinese values, technologies, and policy preferences to take hold. Moreover, when the United States and its allies criticize China in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and the South China Sea, Beijing is able to rally support from within these developing economies. The United States needs to change this dynamic by working with other large market democracies to pursue a significant new development initiative with these economies, such as a sustainable and smart cities program. Include them in the clean network and resilient supply chain initiatives. Welcome them to the table as part of small ad hoc groups on administration priorities, such as cyber, climate, and corruption. Ensure, and ensure opportunities for study in the United States and other advanced democracies for the next generation of leaders from these countries. Finally, I would just note that the 14th five, China released the 14th five-year plan just a week ago, 
And in it, it highlights priority areas for China, including the Arctic and Antarctica, maritime governance and space. Xi Jinping has put the world on notice about his next big strategic place, and we should pay attention. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Dr. Let me call upon Mr. Shugart. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts on the military balance in the Indo-Pacific region. It is a privilege to testify here today. I must note that the views I will express are my own and do not represent those of any organization with which I am affiliated. When I consider the overall state of the military balance in the region, my assessment is that we are entering a period of deep uncertainty in stark contrast to the, to the more favorable situation of the past and also in contrast to the situation that, without changes to current trends, we seem headed towards in time. That is, Chinese military domination of the region. In fact, just this week, the Air Force Chief of Staff and Marine Corps Commandant wrote that, based on assessments conducted by senior military and civilian leaders over the past several years, trend lines indicate the Joint Force is not ready to satisfy the demands of great power competition in the Indo-Pacific, unquote. The ongoing trends in the regional military balance that concern me the most are those related to China's development of broad capabilities clearly intended to counter or deter a U.S. intervention to defend our allies. These are most visible in the form of China's deployment of large numbers of long-range and precise ballistic missiles, its growing bomber force, and its rapidly growing Blue Water Navy. As detailed in my written testimony, China has been engaged in what could be described as the largest and most rapid expansion of maritime and aerospace power in generations. While the United States and our allies have begun to recognize and take action to address the challenge, these efforts continue to face impediments to implementation and have thus far been of somewhat limited impact. But even with all that, invading or coercing our allies within the region will remain a high bar for China for some time. Our military has hard-won advantages over China's based on experience, multi-purpose platforms, and difficult to replicate capabilities in key areas such as undersea warfare, stealth aircraft, and the worldwide reach of our naval forces. These advantages will take time for China to erode, though we should remain watchful given recent indications of focused Chinese efforts in these areas. Considering it all, what I'm left with is a humbling sense of uncertainty that I mentioned before. In this regard, the following unanswered questions come to the fore. First, will China acquire the sea lift capacity to invade Taiwan? And if so, when? While much recent commentary has documented the growing level of integration between civilian industry and the Chinese military, known as military civil fusion, some may not appreciate the scale of such integration with China's world-class merchant fleet. For perspective, China's shipbuilding industry routinely builds more tonnage of ships annually than the United States did at the peak of the emergency shipbuilding program of World War II. And China's merchant fleet today totals more than seven times the size of our merchant fleet at the end of that war when it was supporting huge armies thousands of miles from home. Next, in a conflict, would the PLA strike our forces preemptively, degrading their ability to respond? Some analysts assess that China is unlikely to do so out of a concern of widening a conflict. However, such an interpretation minimizes a number of factors in Chinese strategic thought, as well as real-world evidence, which indicates that they are building a force to be able to do so and practicing using it. And finally, how would key weapon system interactions play out? To a far greater extent than in wars of the past, the course of peer conflicts in the precision strike era may be dramatically affected by individual weapon, sensor, and information system interactions, whose resolution may not be truly known until the shooting actually starts. Given all of this, and given China's desire to gain what they call war control prior to escalation, 
our deterrent efforts must focus on amplifying uncertainty in their minds, as it is uncertainty of success and a desire to con ensure continued internal stability that is most likely to deter the Chinese Communist Party from engaging in armed conflict, not efforts to merely impose costs and provide off-ramps. With this in consideration, my specific recommendations for how to ensure continued deterrence of Chinese military aggression are as follows. First, we should undermine China's potential plans to strike at key U.S. and allied capabilities at the start of a conflict by denying China easy targets within the region and by building resilience against command and control disruption. Next, we and our allies should visibly prepare for protracted war. This could include measures such as stockpiling critical supplies, conducting joint exercises focused on interdiction of Chinese maritime commerce, and designing easy-to-produce weapons and platforms whose production could be rapidly increased. Last, we must ensure that our allies and partners and their publics fully appreciate the threat posed by the growing capabilities of the Chinese People's Liberation Army and the grave consequences for them of a failure of deterrence. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today. I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Khan. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee, good morning, and thank you for the opportunity to speak today. I'm a research fellow specializing in semiconductor policy at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology, a nonpartisan think tank at Georgetown University that studies the security implications of new technologies. Today, I'll cover three topics. First, the United States and China's respective advantages in technology competition. Second, how our best strategy to sustain long-term leadership will be to double down on our current strengths, our international partnerships, and ability to attract the world's top talent. Third, the importance of maintaining US competitiveness in two linchpin technologies, semiconductors and artificial intelligence. China's science and technology has progressed faster than US efforts to track it. China has a vast technology transfer, technology transfer infrastructure, R&D investments equal to the United States, and more than twice as many yearly S&T graduates as America does. China's efforts have resulted in competitive capabilities across facial recognition, genomics, IT applications, military aviation, and material science. But the United States and its allies retain advantages in many core technologies, especially areas with hard to acquire know-how and high capital costs that pose barriers to entry. These areas include semiconductor chips, jet engines, certain space-related technologies, and equipment for quantum computing. The U.S. also leads China in fundamental research. But the areas in which the U.S. is currently ahead may not provide a durable strategic advantage. First, the technology landscape evolves quickly and unpredictably. Where China is behind in a critical domain, it seeks to leapfrog ahead by acquiring cutting-edge technologies from abroad and investing in new paradigms that render U.S. and allied advantages obsolete. Second, supply chains have become increasingly globalized, meaning no single country controls all inputs necessary to secure technological capabilities through unilateral trade controls. Third, unlike decades ago, the private sector dominates today's most strategic technologies, requiring governments to adapt them before any strategic advantage can be gained. To compete with the increasing scale and quality of China's S&T efforts, we must double down on our asymmetric advantages. First, our network of allies is the world's strongest. The U.S. funds only 28% of global R&D compared to China's 26%, but the U.S. plus six allies fund over half. And although the United States is just one node in globalized supply chains, together with allies, we control key technologies such as chip manufacturing equipment. To mount an effective response to China, we must cooperate with allies on research, investment, technology standards, and export controls. Second, 
America's open society has continually attracted the world's best and brightest. Half of the PhD level scientists and engineers employed in the United States were born abroad. But outdated immigration restrictions have made other nations increasingly attractive. Meanwhile, China's science and engineering workforce is growing faster than its US counterpart and will become the world's largest if it hasn't already. We must both invest in our domestic workforce and ensure the US remains the world's top destination for global talent by broadening and accelerating pathways to permanent residency for scientists and engineers. They wanna stay. Foreign nationals graduating from US science and engineering PhD program, programs overwhelmingly remain in the United States. Strong evidence suggests that increases in high-skilled immigration improve innovation, jobs, and wages for US-born workers. Finally, I wanna call special attention to two linchpin technologies, semiconductor chips and artificial intelligence. Semiconductor chips underpin all modern technology. While the US and allies still lead in semiconductors, China's investing at an unprecedented rate. If trends continue, China will become the world's largest semiconductor manufacturer, fundamentally altering the global economic and security landscape. Meanwhile, US manufacturers have lost market share and will continue to fall behind without policy action. To reduce supply chain risks and create high quality American jobs, we should generously fund semiconductor manufacturing incentives. And to ensure that democracies lead in advanced chips and that they are used for good, we must partner with allies on joint R&D and tighten multilateral export controls on chip manufacturing equipment. Semiconductor chips provide the computing part power for artificial intelligence, the second technology I wanna discuss. AI promises to revolutionize sectors from transportation to scientific discovery. But AI systems are fragile and error prone. Deploying them in critical systems without verifying their trustworthiness poses grave risks. We must better collaborate with allies on R&D for AI safety and security and test beds and standards for AI development. We must also identify opportunities to collaborate with competitors, including China, to build confidence and avoid races to the bottom. We should invest in new AI technologies that protect privacy and other civil liberties and restrict exports of American technology to human rights abusers, such as Chinese companies using AI systems for surveillance. The US can ensure long-term technological leadership, but only with concerted action. I thank the committee for the opportunity to speak today. Well, thank you, thank you all for your testimony. Uh, we'll start a, a round of five minute questioning and we'll recognize members uh, by seniority in the order of their appearance at the time of the gavel. Uh, in order to be recognized, uh, please have your video on so that I know you're ready to uh, to to uh, be called upon. So I'll start uh, the first five minutes. Uh, uh, it is no secret that China seeks to exert its influence and power through conventional and emerging tools, but there is still some debate about exactly to what end. I have my own views, but I'd like to hear yours. Do you believe, China, what do you believe is China's goal uh, in the near term, in the long term, uh, and why? Dr. O'Connor? Um, thank you very much. You know, as, as I suggested, I, I think um, China seeks, uh, you know, a transformed uh, world order, uh, one which it's reclaimed centrality on the global stage, uh, where its norms and values are reflected uh, instead of uh, those of uh, liberal democracies, uh, and where uh, it has, you know, regional preeminence, where it's reunified. Um, uh, it is an innovation and technological uh, powerhouse, 
so that it's technologies from you know fiber optic cables to e-commerce to satellite systems also dominate uh, globally. We've seen China move ahead with a you know digital currency, so I think it's seeking to you know escape uh, from uh, the dollar uh, dominance you know in, in the future. Uh, so I, th I think it's, it is all about uh, returning China to, to past glory, but it's a glory for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Let me ask uh, uh, you all, uh, the Secret uh, Secretary Blinken and uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan are planning on meeting with their Chinese counterparts this weekend. The administration has cautioned that this, is, uh, this meeting is not intended to be uh, the first of a dialogue, but rather an initial meeting to set expectation and priorities uh, and to inform the administration's Indo-Pacific and China policy reviews. What would you hope to see out of this Alaska meeting? Uh, what should they hope to accomplish in this trip from your perspectives? Anyone in particular want to share? I think I, I certainly would would hope that they will um, clearly articulate um, sort of the U.S.'s uh, new approach uh, that's rooted in in values. Uh, that you know this is going to be a policy that is uh, an alliance-based policy, uh, and uh, that the United States uh, is going to be back uh, assuming a leadership position in international institutions. Uh, that we take seriously China's uh, human rights abuses uh, in Xinjiang and its policies in Hong Kong. Uh, I think. Uh, uh, Kurt Campbell was, um, you know, extremely articulate in his defense of Australia when he said that uh, the United States is not going to improve its relationship uh, with China unless uh, China improves uh, its relationship with Australia. I think it's an important signal that uh, the United States is standing by its uh, allies. So I think it's establishing a new framework uh, for the U.S. approach to China that's embedded in values and allies and, and multilateral institutions. All right, and then let me ask, uh, and I think both to you, Dr. Economy, and Mr. Shugart, in this particular respect, do you believe that our Indo-Pacific strategy ought to be a function of our China policy, as it was during the Trump administration, or that our China policy ought to be a function of our Indo-Pacific strategy? And put another way, can we get China right if we don't get the region right first? Okay, I, I think um, absolutely our, our allies come first, and uh, it's you know an Indo-Pacific strategy uh, because Indo-Pacific strategy is at the center. But again, it's it's about a global strategy, uh, and it's based in our allies, it's based in our values, and that is what the free and open Indo-Pacific represents. Uh, and I think China should be placed within that. Uh, we don't want to be in a re reactive and defensive position uh, where we're simply responding to China. We want to be in a proactive uh, position. And I think we can only do that if we're asserting our own values uh, up front. On that question, Senator, I think that, uh, I mean, we should be expressing the, the, the basic goals that support, I mean, I think that the military uh, unfortunate confrontation largely arises out of uh, their apparent desire to you know, contravene what we've gotten, what we're used to uh, for decades now, of free and open freedom of navigation, et cetera. And really, it's their their challenges that, that drive uh, the military confrontation for the most work that we're seeing there. Under question of defense goals uh, or of their goals in the, in the defense realm, they've made it fairly clear in their defense uh, white papers and other strategic, strategic documents what those are, it's just, we have very different interpretations sometimes of what those words mean. 
and what that translates into. You know, they talk about sovereignty. We may think that that like, sovereignty is um, the control of individual nations, but they, you know, they may define it as reuniting themselves with Taiwan. They, when they talk about maritime rights and interests, those are not the maritime rights and interests in accordance with with, uh, with um, international law as we understand them. So they've made that pretty obvious. The biggest one what I think we see over time is their expansion to protect what they would call protecting overseas interests and their sea lines of communication. We can see that that as their capabilities have grown, their military capabilities that have grown, so have their strategic objectives to go along with those. And I think it's when you consider the, the fullness of what they've said their interests are and objectives are that they really do want to maintain sea lines of communication overseas. That's what explains uh, to some degree the really major expansion of their Blue Water Navy that we've seen in recent years. Thank you, uh, Senator Risch. Briefly, and uh, and that is uh, what one of the things we didn't talk about much was the uh, student uh, exchange that our countries do. Uh, there are almost three hundred and seventy thousand students study uh, Chinese students studying in America. Let me say that again. 370,000 uh, Chinese students studying in America. On the other hand, the United States has uh, less than 12,000 students uh, studying in China. Um, we don't talk about this much because as being an open society, we encourage exchange of culture and that sort of thing. But for those of us who work in the intelligence space, we know that at least part of those 370,000 are actually in the collection business. and. Uh, so as a result of that, uh, this whole thing gets uh, mixed together and not much gets done about it. But uh, for Chinese students in, uh, in studying high-tech uh, matters here and, and all matters really in the United States, it's easy for them to extricate uh, uh, the, the uh, value that we have and the knowledge that we have and take it home. Um, now, we, we don't want to uh, in any way curb the exchange of culture, but on the other hand, I think we need to protect ourselves. I'd like to hear each of your thoughts on this, uh, obviously, uh, unbalanced situation with the number of students uh, in each place and what we do about uh, uh, having students placed in areas where uh, our very valuable information is why don't you go through the same way you started, uh, Ms. Economy, if you'd Okay, so I think as you suggested, there are differences um, between undergraduates and graduate students. And, you know, for undergraduate students, I would say the danger is really uh, that they, you know, some students are there to report on other students. Uh, and I think we need to make clear at the college level, maybe they should have a civics class on, you know, American values. Uh, they maybe should be, you know, sign a pledge that they are not going to report on their fe fellow students or face expulsion. Um, I think we should not allow for uh, Chinese uh, government funding of uh, Chinese student organizations on campuses. Uh, and I certainly know that uh, Congress has moved very aggressively uh, to uh, encourage universities to shut down their Confucius Institute. So I don't think we should, you know, close down uh, avenues of, of, um, of study for Chinese students. I think it's essential that we keep those doors open. Um, and, and just let me make one point on the return part of it. You, you know, you mentioned the disparity in number. I mean, the truth is that uh, number of U.S. students uh, studying in China has declined 
um, and some campuses have closed their um, uh, have closed their programs because of lack of U.S. student interest. I think that's the problem. It's not that the Chinese are keeping American students out, but that American students are, are not actually pursuing Chinese language study or want to study in mainland China. That's the, that's the challenge. Um, as far as the graduate students are are concerned. Um, you know, I think uh, we need to have, you know, we've discovered, you know, the PLA, uh, you know, uh, PLA members uh, posing as students, obviously that needs to, to stop and the FBI is doing its investigations. Universities, you know, that are accepting defense funding in labs um, should not uh, have a PLA, uh, I mean, should not have Chinese uh, graduate students um, there unless they have some, you know, very intense security uh, within their labs. And I think we need to be very careful uh, and do a lot of vetting of uh, Chinese graduate students. But again, I don't want to limit their opportunities, but our priority has to be to secure our, our uh, intellectual property. Uh, Senator, I, I would say while educational policy is mostly beyond my area of uh, expertise, clearly any um, you know, information flowing in that direction regarding uh, technical advances would obviously be detrimental uh, potentially to the long-term military advantage in the region for us. Thank you. So I'd like to quote a senior counterintelligence official who actually noted that 99%, 99.9% of Chinese students in the U.S. Are, are just here to contribute to the economy. So we're talking about a very, very small percentage um, of the total that actually uh, presents any concern. Uh, another point is Chinese officials are on record as noting that uh, the brain drain that they're experiencing to the United States is actually very much to their disadvantage and to our advantage. Uh, so I, I think that the Chinese students are actually contributing quite a bit to our economy, and it's actually a source of comparative advantage. Um, another uh, piece is that uh, virtually all of the notable um, cases of espionage have actually not involved students, but rather um, other types of institutions, such as industry or government labs, for example. And so students really aren't the, the, the population that would be, we should be very concerned about. But I absolutely agree with uh, Dr. Economy and Mr. Shugart uh, that we, we should absolutely be concerned about our intellectual property. Um, I do think that there are more targeted measures that we can take uh, to ensure uh, protection of that intellectual property. Um, thank, you, thank you very much. I, I, I will have to say, uh, I respect your opinion. I can tell you that uh, dealing with the intelligence people, they are substantially more concerned about the issue than you are. But that's a that's a fair uh, uh, this is a fair way of laying out uh, both of our views on it, and I think all of us need to explore that a bit further. Um, I uh, my time's probably up or close to it, but I would like to hear from Dr. Economy very briefly uh, about the, the reference she made to the dollar being uh, obviously the international standard. Uh, that's something that, that we've enjoyed uh, for many, many years. If that changes, it's going to affect things dramatically. Dr. Conway, would you, would you care to uh, comment on that? Sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, for a long time, the Chinese have, you know, sought to increase the role of the, uh, the yuan uh, in world uh, trade. Uh, but now they're pursuing this digital currency. It's actually a program that we're starting up at the Hoover Institution just now to explore uh, sort of the Chinese objectives and ambitions with regard to this. But certainly one of the things we're going to be looking at uh, is how they might use a digital currency uh, to push uh, the use of the renminbi and move away from uh, the role of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chairman. Thank you. For all members' uh, purposes, there's a, there should be a clock on your screen just so you can measure your, your time. But Senator Shaheen. 
Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all of our witnesses. Uh, yesterday, we held a hearing in the Armed Services Committee with the head of SOUTHCOM, Southern Command, who's responsible for um, the Western Hemisphere south of the United States, so Central America and Latin America. And he gave us a map of Chinese influence in the Western, in Latin America, that I found very troubling. I, I'm gonna hold this up now. I appreciate that you won't be able to see uh, the specifics, but just look at the red color, because that's where China has so much of its influence. And I wanna read a couple of the statistics here. Of the 31 countries in Latin America, 25 host Chinese infrastructure projects. 19 countries have joined the One Belt, One Road initiative. The cumulative value of COVID-19 assistance to Latin America is greater than 120 million. The goal for China is to provide $250 billion in loans to Latin America by 2025. And they've had 44 heads of state meetings there since 2015 with um, heads of state from countries in Latin America. So I, I would like, Mr. Chairman, if I could to submit this for the record. Without objection. Thank you. Um, so clearly, you've been talking mostly about China's influence in uh, the Indo-Pacific, but clearly they're moving into Europe, they're moving into Latin America in the Western Hemisphere. In fact, um, they have significant diplomatic and economic assistance um, throughout Latin America. So, and while they're doing that, um, in the last four years, we have had only one ambassador in the Central American countries, and that's in Guatemala. So can you talk about what advantage it gives to China when we leave the playing field to them in places like Latin America and what the, the implications of that are for the United States? I can direct it or anyone can take it. Um, sure, I mean, I guess I can start and then maybe others can, can add in. Um, absolutely. I mean, you know, Belt and Road Initiative is, is a global initiative uh, and, you know, it includes um, technology like, you know, deploying Huawei, uh, but also fiber optic cables uh, in e-commerce. So you're going to see, you know, the Chinese uh, e-commerce, com uh, you know, uh, companies coming in uh, as well. Uh, it includes, uh, you know, hard infrastructure, ports and railroads and highways. Um, there is, you know, a military component to it, so you can watch China uh, building uh, ports uh, and have, you know, PLA Navy ships stop by for some visits. I don't think that's happened yet uh, there, but, but this is the kind of thing that uh, you can expect and it includes political capacity building. And so, you know, offering seminars uh, for Belt and Road countries on how to manage the Internet uh, and control civil society. So for authoritarian leaning countries, of course, this is very attractive. You know, it's a one-stop shop on how to bolster uh, your control uh, over the uh, economy. So, um, but you know, th there's a, a lot of uh, attraction uh, for many uh, uh, countries. Um, and uh, I participated in a seminar with uh, Latin American uh, scholars and some uh, former officials, and they say, you know, China listens to us. Uh, they're engaging in uh, joint innovation projects, uh, which they find, you know, very uh, exciting and attractive in ways that, you know, the United States does not. They're pouring money into having uh, students from Latin America 
uh, go to China. So, you know, full scholarships uh, for students to go there. Uh, so, you know, China is trying to deploy the type of soft power that the United States, you know, has traditionally right. been known for. Uh, and they are making inroads. They are. Thank you. And I think it was it's fair to say that um, most of us who saw that map yesterday in the Armed Services Committee were surprised to see not to see what China's doing in the Indo-Pacific, but surprised to see what they're doing in our hemisphere in Latin America. And recognizing that our government can't order American companies to invest abroad um, in the same way that uh, the PRC can, can you all talk about what we can do to better encourage our companies to invest in places where there are interests, I hope, not just of those private companies, but of the American government around the world? Um, sure. I, I guess, you know, part of um, that last proposal that I met, I, I mentioned in my, my testimony about uh, developing, uh, you know, a, a new economic development initiative um, with our, our um, you know, larger uh, allies, uh, market democracy allies, you know, has to do with just that, right? So, you know, using a development finance corporation funding uh, to support uh, American firms uh, to go, you know, into some of these countries. Uh, thinking about how to bring these countries, when we're talking about developing resilient supply chains, when we're encouraging our companies uh, to, uh, you know, diversify out of China, right, to develop more regional-based uh, supply chains, then why not think about, you know, encouraging them to go into some countries in Latin America? Uh, so I think there are, are ways that we can do that, but I think we need to think in a grand and strategic way in partnership uh, with others. We're not going to be able to do it alone. We're not going to be able to match China, you know, investment for investment. Uh, so we need to come up with, I think, a, a creative way of re-engaging. And, and again, I think part of it, to be frank, is listening. Uh, because one thing that China does, at least at the outset of its, you know, you mentioned all those visits that the Chinese leaders make and they're holding all these uh, seminars, they give leaders and other officials the feeling that they're being listened to. And I think that's something very much that sometimes we're good at it and sometimes we're not. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Portman. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for holding the hearing. Uh, to you and Senator Risch, I appreciate your focus on China. I noted the commitment to an April 14th markup of the China bill. I thank you for that. It's timely. Um, so many great questions to ask, but Mr. Khan, I want to start with you. Uh, you talked about the need for us to enhance our own research here to keep up with China. You talked about uh, artificial intelligence in particular, and you talked about the semiconductor crisis we face right now without a supply chain that's reliable. Let me just ask you two quick questions, if I could. In the National Defense Authorization Act, we got the CHIPS Act included. It's an authorization. It would require a $37 billion appropriations to make it effective. Uh, then we also got AI legislation in, uh, including some members of, of this committee, and I worked on this. And it's called the AI Initiative Act, as you know, and it's about the government, the federal government's coordination of artificial intelligence response and research. That would require a $6 billion commitment. Do you support those levels of funding? And uh, if not, do you support more or, or, or less? What's the appropriate amount of funding for from the taxpayers to work with the private sector to enhance our ability to keep up with China and to surpass them, hopefully, in some of these areas? Yes, yeah, Senator, thanks for the great questions. Uh, so. Uh, yes, I do support uh, those ranges of funding uh, for the CHIPS Act. 
Um, that would certainly work as an initial uh, down payment and depending on the effectiveness of incentives um, and the other programs in the CHIPS Act, we can, con we can con consider later appropriating uh, even additional funds on top of that. I do think that uh, keeping semiconductor manufacturing in the United States is an absolutely critical national security priority. Um, right now, the, the supply chains for this technology are too centralized and there's a lot of risks um, that we could be cut off. And so um, it, it should be a, a very high priority. And I think even those levels of funding are actually quite uh, cost effective. Um, well, thank you. Well, thank you. Go ahead. I look, I look at what's happening to the auto industry in Ohio uh, and also around the country. And we're literally stopping production of automobiles right now. Over 200,000 cars were not made this year that would have been made but for the semiconductors. And we're totally dependent on Taiwan, as you know, and China's developing quickly. Uh, another point, Mr. Chairman, on the China legislation, we have legislation called Securing the American Innovation Act, and it comes from a year-long investigation by the Permanent Subcommittee Investigations, a, a deep dive, bipartisan. And what we were able to reveal, uh, sadly, was that for two decades now, China has been systematically targeting, promising American researchers, promising American research paid for by the U.S. taxpayer and taking it to China to improve their conditions, including the rise of the Chinese military and the economy. And we've begun to crack down on it finally. You, you know, you've seen a number of, of, uh, of arrests uh, by the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's offices. But frankly, we need legislation to give them more tools to be able to deal with it. So as we put more money into uh, some of our research institutions in order to respond to the threat from China economically, we've got to be sure we're protecting that money. So I, I appreciate Senator Risch, Senator Coons, and others in the committee who have been co-sponsors of that legislation. And I hope it can be included in whatever final China bill we have because it provides what we need to ensure that we have that balance. Uh, we need foreign researchers to work with our researchers here, but we also need to take common steps to prevent bad actors uh, from taking that research, which has been done over, again, two decades. On the issue of China, uh, Dr. Economy, I want to talk to you about what we're doing with the Global Engagement Center. This is to try to push back on disinformation and propaganda. China is very good at it. Last year, Senator Booker and I chaired an oversight hearing of this committee on combating disinformation. And the expert witnesses told us that China spends over $10 billion annually in state-sponsored disinformation operations, $10 billion annually. And so my question to you, uh, Dr. Economy, is can you elaborate a little on China's use of disinformation? It's inexpensive. It's got a lot of deniability attached to it. Uh, I listened carefully to what Senator Shaheen said about Latin America. They're certainly engaged in it there and in Africa. What are the most pressing areas where you have studied China disinformation campaigns and and why do they use this tactic and what should we be doing to push back against it? Um, thank you, Senator. Uh, certainly, look, we're right in the midst of a Chinese disinformation campaign ourselves, right? As the Chinese are spreading uh, untruths about uh, the United States as the source of uh, COVID-19, uh, you know? Uh, so I think, uh, you know, obviously shedding light and pushing back against uh, Chinese efforts is, is critical. But I think in other countries uh, that have a less robust uh, free press, uh, you know, one of the greatest concerns in my mind, if you look uh, in Africa, for example, where Chinese media companies are uh, managing not only, for example, the digitization of uh, villages in Kenya, but also providing the content uh, for, uh, you know, Kenyan television in, in many villages. And, and the newspapers are basically uh, doing what they used to do with AP. It's much cheaper they can just get for free uh, from uh, Renmin Rabao and China Daily. Uh, and so what you're getting in many developing countries now are just a flood of Chinese information. And so it's a little bit different maybe from disinformation, but it's a close second uh, because it's basically spreading a Chinese narrative uh, and, you know, cutting out access to, you know, other sources of information. 
For example, you know, in Kenya, they price uh, access to the BBC and other international stations at a higher rate uh, to dissuade um, uh, people from uh, buying, uh, you know, access to that kind of information. So, um, look, they, inf they, you know, influenced the Taiwanese, the recent Taiwanese elections um, or attempted to. Uh, you know, they spread all sorts of disinformation over the course of a COVID-19 uh, pandemic about other countries' responses. You know, I think that the most important thing we can do is simply to uh, to shed light on, on the lies, to to um, to push back against them, um, and uh, you know, and act in concert with our allies uh, on this. Um, so, I, I you know, uh, our best our best response is a sort of the transparency uh, that's inherent in our own yeah. system. Well, I think Thank my you. time is up, but the Global Engagement Center is directed at all those things, and uh, Senator uh, Murphy and I have attempted to get more funding into it for that reason, because it does support a free press, as an example, to get to the truth in those countries. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the testifiers. Dr. Economy, I want to stay with you uh, for a few minutes. I want to ask about the Arctic and uh, China's interest there. China is taking advantage of the fact that the Arctic is becoming more accessible because of climate change. In 2013, it became an observer of the Arctic Council, the primary forum Arctic states used to discuss regional issues. And in 2018, the Chinese government published its own Arctic strategy where it proclaimed itself to be a near Arctic state, which is pretty much meaningless, but it does indicate to us that they are trying to get a seat at the table as Arctic states discuss the rules of the road. Uh, China also announced a polar silk road uh, plan to finance port airfield and undersea cable and other infrastructure projects in the region. And last year, its first domestic built icebreaker completed an Arctic expedition. So can you talk about China's goals in the Arctic and specifically what the United States uh, can and should be doing about it? Uh, and if you wouldn't mind commenting on whether or not you think we should ratify the law of the sea treaty. Um, so last question first, yes, I think we should uh, ratify uh, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Uh, both uh, because of what's taking place uh, in uh, the South China Sea, but also as I think you're intimating in terms of uh, the Arctic. Uh, you know, 168 countries have ratified. We should be part of that. It gives us, you know, a platform to engage with them. Uh, so absolutely. In terms of, you know, China's um, uh, move to become uh, a great polar power, uh, you know, it's it's very interesting. This is had begun uh, as early as 2008, um, uh, right at the moment of the global financial crisis. You know, China established its own polar institute, as you said. Uh, it's, I think, a, the perfect example of that kind of multi-actor, multi-domain approach that I was talking about, long-term strategic uh, objectives. Um, you know, they deploy their diplomats and their scholars, so they're reframing the narrative around the Arctic to talk about it as, you know, because it's global climate change, because of the resources there, it's an issue of global commons, so it shouldn't be managed by merely the, you know, few Arctic uh, countries that are there that are part of the Arctic Council. Um, you have their scientists taking part in uh, Arctic research. Uh, you know, they've done more polar expeditions now than any other country. Uh, their military is developing, you know, great capabilities with the icebreakers, um, you know, pursuing a very aggressive campaign that's going to outstrip us, already is outstripping us. Uh, so I think, look, they see this, um, you know, as, as you said, Xi Jinping wants to be a great polar power. Uh, they're going to try to um, reshape uh, the way that Arctic governance is uh, sort of considered so that they will get a seat at the table, a formal seat, not simply an observer seat. Um, and they've been investing uh, 
as I, I noted, in Nordic countries. Uh, so they've deployed both state-owned enterprises and private enterprises to take up strategic investments. Uh, and one of the things that we see beginning in 2018 is that a number of Nordic countries have noticed this uh, and their defense intelligence agencies have said this has to stop. And so you're beginning to see pushback. So I think, I wanna, uh, sorry. I want to go, go south with my remaining time to Oceania. Uh, most of China's influence on the region comes from financing loans, more than one and a half billion in the, in the last decade. And we know about the debt trap diplomacy that they uh, deploy. Um, it's becoming increasingly a problem in Oceania where economies are fragile uh, during the pandemic. And I worry that China could take advantage of indebted countries to gain a foothold in the Pacific to develop ports and airstrips. In Vanuatu, uh, China agreed to finance a nine, $90 million wharf large enough to dock cruise ships. But Vanuatu is also already highly indebted to China with China, hold, China holding half of its external debt. As we look at post-pandemic uh, uh, society, the risk of default uh, and, and recapturing these assets may be high. Uh, can you talk about um, what the United States should be doing in the region in terms of soft power, economic power, uh, whether it's uh, um, uh, USAID or any of our other tools of diplomacy. Clearly, we're not going to be financing ports all over the place, but we've got to have tools in our toolkit. We've got to be engaged in Oceania and not think of our Asia Pacific strategy as just South China Sea, DPRK, Japan, TPP. We've got to look at the vast ocean in between our country and China and the many, many countries that are in the Pacific. Thank you. Uh, so I think this is an area where, um, you know, we have a program in place, the Blue Dot Initiative, um, that if it were really moved forward in an aggressive way with Australia and Japan, you know, to work with countries to help them develop the capacity to uh, appropriately evaluate uh, Chinese bids and Chinese initiatives. Uh, and then to offer alternatives. Uh, you're right that we can't be there doing this, but you know, Japan is a larger provider of infrastructure uh, in Southeast Asia than China is. Uh, so there may be opportunities for Australia, Japan, and other countries to step in uh, and do some of this infrastructure uh, development as well, or at the very least, if China is going to do it to ensure that it's done uh, in a way that is uh, economically sustainable for these countries. I'll make two final points. Um, your point earlier with Senator Shaheen about the value of listening and treating a head of state like a head of state uh, really applies uh, to FSM, to the marshals uh, uh, throughout uh, Oceania. And then one final sort of point of personal privilege. I just think this committee and, and U.S. government officials should be extremely precise when describing uh, the government of China uh, as opposed to the Chinese, because I think that uh, given what's happening in, in U.S. society uh, to Chinese Americans and other Asian Americans, uh, we owe everyone that kind of precision. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Senator Schatz, and uh, a, a point well taken. Senator Rounds. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, let me just begin by telling you that I very seldom find one of these committee hearings where all of the individuals involved in providing testimony seem to agree on a particular item. And in this particular case, we hear all of our uh, separate uh, 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 members here in front of us all talking about the very serious challenges that we have regarding uh, the People's Republic of China. And I, I look back at uh, the time in, in which I served as the chairman and now the ranking member of the Armed Services Subcommittee on Cybersecurity, 
and the impact that China has on the way that we look at, at um, the international norms. And, and in particular, thinking uh, the numbers that we've most recently heard about what China has done across the globe, uh, intellectual property, the theft of over $600 billion in international property or intellectual properties, uh, their lack of respect for copyrights, lack of respect for patents, their interest in not just espionage, but in uh, theft through cyber activity, uh, all seems to point to a difference in norms between what most of the rest of the normalized international society accept as being good for all of their countries versus what this particular government believes is the right way to react with other governments. I'd like to just work our way through. Should we be involved and do you think it's worthwhile to discuss with uh, the government of China uh, what the appropriate norms are and in the establishment of norms with regard to cyber activity, just as an example? And look, I mean, it used to be we talked about air, land, and sea. Now we've got cyberspace and we've got space. And in both cases, we have an outlier with China in terms of their apparent lack of regard for what most of us thought were norms. Um, I'd like to just get on the line with each of you and just briefly share with us what you think, think the possibilities are of actually having a good dialogue and what the benefits to them would be for having that dialogue with us and what we could do if they decide not to. Um, Dr. Economy, would you like to begin and just briefly your thoughts? So briefly, <laughs> I, I think the Chinese um, very well understand what appropriate norms are. Uh, we had a cyber agreement with them. I think it was signed in 2015 under the Obama administration. There seemed to be a dip in cyber attacks, but then later people said it was simply because uh, the cyber attacks were more uh, sophisticated and we just were picking up on them at the same rate. Uh, so I don't think there's an issue where, the, where China you know, doesn't understand what it means to protect intellectual property or doesn't you know, understand what they're doing with their cyber economic espionage. And I'm afraid that um, there's not much point in, in uh, norm discussions, but there uh, probably is some, some point in working with allies to bring pressure to bear upon them in some way. Thank you. Mr. Sugar. I largely agree with Dr. Economy there. I mean, we, we know that Chinese cyber activity has been you know, quite deleterious to the military balance in, in the Pacific. There's numerous examples of Chinese platforms of weapon systems and sensors that are very closely modeled on, on what we've developed. It explains to some extent the ability, you know, sometimes people will ask, how is it that when we spend so much more than them, uh, they're able to, uh, have been able to become so threatening in the region? A part of it is because they're able to have second mover advantage in terms of the costs associated with it. That does not mean they're not innovative in their own ways, but certainly the cyber angle has helped them out a lot. And I agree that you know we they know what the right what the right answer is from our perspective, uh, and uh, I don't see them changing it anytime soon just because we ask ask them about it. Mr. Khan, I do think we have to continue to harp on our values, um, say what they are, but at the end of the day, we have to respond effectively to Chinese attempts at technology transfer. Uh, and there's a lot of changes we can potentially make uh, to better combat that. Um, one is just better. Uh, applying export controls and investment screening measures more multilaterally and in a more targeted way. Um, we also just don't know enough about China's technology transfer infrastructure, as well as their emerging technology developments. And so we ideally need a stronger base of open source intelligence, just tracking all of those developments so we know what to fight against. 
Uh, and finally, I think we no need a better whole of society approach on research security. Uh, some of my colleagues at Georgetown have talked about, uh, you know, creating public-private partnerships that uh, bring government, industry, and academia together together to uh, create best practices for um, how to uh, combat tech transfer. So I think we just have to take uh, kind of an approach to, to respond. I, I think just stating our norms isn't going to be enough. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, my time has expired. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Rounds. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and let me thank all of our witnesses. This is certainly an, a critically important subject when we talk about strategic competition with China. So I want to talk about where China is out of norm, and that is in good governance issues. And there's so many areas that we could talk about, the way they treat the Muslim minority with the Uyghurs, uh, what they've done with the people of Hong Kong and the commitment that they made in regards to the system that would be used in Hong Kong. And we've taken action. Congress has passed legislation to impose certain sanctions against China as a result of these behaviors. The administrations, the Trump administration, the Biden administration have all taken and considered action against China as a result of their violations of human rights. My question is, there's still a lot of space left on which we can impose uh, sanctions against China, including trade sanctions. It would certainly be much stronger if we work with our allies in a common strategy. I would like to get your view as to what has worked, what more can be done, and what allies are going to be critically important for us to have working in unison with us to make it clear to China that there will be consequences if they continue the oppression in Hong Kong and the way that they treat their own citizens. So, um, you know, what allies would be critical uh, to work with if we were to um, impose uh, more sanctions on China? Uh, you know, Germany certainly, uh, you know, huge exporter to China. Um, uh, you know, Japan, uh, I think we can go down the line. Uh, but I, I have to say, unfortunately, uh, that I believe when it comes to issues uh, that China considers, you know, core sovereignty issues, uh, like Xinjiang and like Hong Kong, uh, I'm not certain that any amount of economic sanction is going to bring about change. I think instead China will continue to hunker down uh, and uh, assert its sovereignty. So um, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm just saying I don't anticipate that it's going to uh, engender the desired result. Let me just respond to your point, and I recognize that, and you mentioned uh, Germany. We lost an opportunity in the Trans-Pacific Partnership to be in unity with the Asian countries and the Pacific countries uh, in a policy that could have isolated China's influence on the trade front. Germany, of course, is very much in tune with EU, so it, it, working with the European Union would certainly be critically important. So if we can deal with the Pacific nations, if we can deal with Europe, and isolate China economically for these types of behaviors, it seems to me that our sanction policy would be more effective. I recognize that China will never acknowledge uh, their justification of sovereignty, even though it is no justification for violating their international commitments on Hong Kong, the way they treat their own citizens. But uh, my point is that we're not gonna give up. Uh, President Biden's made it clear that our foreign policy is going to be wrapped in our in our values. My question is, how can we be more effective in changing behavior in China? 
Uh, and to me, perhaps re-engaging the Pacific nations on trade, uh, perhaps um, dealing with Europe on the specific sanctions related to Hong Kong. Uh, welcome your additional thoughts, any member of the panel that may have thoughts on that. Let me, let me just offer one quick additional thought, and that is, um, you know, it is fairly easy when it um, comes uh, for China, when it comes to the United States and it's sanctioning China, or even, I would say, the United States and its closest allies, for China to say it's just United States trying to contain China. That's why it's doing this, right? Uh, what would be more helpful would be if, if we could engage a broader swath of the developing economies to stand up. As I mentioned earlier, those are the countries that come to China's defense in the United Nations uh, around things like Xinjiang and Hong Kong. Those are the countries uh, that we need to get to our side. I think once China feels as though it has you know, nowhere, has no support, uh, I think that's when we're going to begin to that's when China will begin to feel the heat. And I will just quickly note that from 2019 to 2020, there were two different uh, resolutions brought before uh, the United Nations on Xinjiang. The Central Asian nations dropped off their support for China from the first to the second. So it is possible to peel them away. They didn't sign up to criticize China, but they didn't support China. So I think we need to do more work in that arena. That's a very good point. I would also recognize my colleagues talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. Very much we have to diminish China's influence that they're trying to buy in otherwise uh, democratic free countries that influence their judgment in joining us and isolating China because of their human rights violations. I think putting together that entire package, it can be much more effective in bringing about change in, in China's uh, governance activities. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. We love your green tie, and you're followed by someone who has an even deeper green tie. Senator Romney. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Dr. Economy, as, as I've listened to the three uh, people testifying this morning, uh, I am struck by the massive investment China is making around the world, uh, an investment in, uh, in propaganda, an investment in sending students around the world, uh, of course, the Belt and Road, making loans all throughout Latin America, through Africa, uh, to the Middle East. Uh, the, the number in Iran was massive. How are they financing all this? How do they afford it? Where, where's the money coming from? Because we're not providing anywhere near the kind of investment around the world that they are. And, and yet we're the larger economy in the world. How is it they're able to afford all of these massive investments? Well, I mean, first, a, a lot of the Belt and Road investment is not actually investment, but loans. And I think that's important to remember that, you know, they're lending the money to uh, these countries. And then uh, they're using these countries are often using Chinese uh, construction firms, Chinese equipment. Uh, and so or they're getting paid back through, you know, resources. So it's one big cycle of, of Chinese money going through and coming back to China. Uh, and they're able to do that because they have such low cost labor, they underbid and they subsidize. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, they've put a priority on this uh, is, is also how they're able to do it. Um, and we have not put a priority on this. I mean, it is also less expensive, uh, frankly, to, uh, you know, host a student in China than it is to host a student in the United States. Um, so I think uh, there are a number of, of ways, but I think fundamentally what it speaks to is, you know, Xi Jinping's belief that this kind of outreach is going to pay off, uh, you know, over the long term and that it is, uh, you know, bent on, uh, you know, 
especially in the technology field with the digital Silk Road, you know, China is going to, to basically provide the you know, technological infrastructure for the 21st century. It's a long-term investment in play. Yeah, but it is, it is, as, they, as they loan money to a foreign country to build a port or to build uh, whatever, uh, they, yeah, the country's going to pay them back in the future. But in the current, they're actually spending the money to pay people to go to that country to build the port and so forth. So they're, there's a lot of money coming in. A lot of that money is coming from the U.S. and that we have pension funds and others that are investing in China. Uh, so I think we need to think of that. Just another question I'll ask you, Dr. Economy, or, or the other members of the panel as well, which is it's very clear that, that China has an extraordinarily comprehensive strategy to dominate the region. And I would suggest once they feel they've dominated the region, they intend to dominate the world. Um, uh, and and uh, I mean, their, their strategy includes their military, uh, their, their uh, competitiveness economically, their propaganda efforts, uh, the management of their own people, their, their, their monitoring of their own people, their geopolitical strategy with Belt and Road, the technology transfer. It's, it's an unbelievably comprehensive strategy. There is no way that a bunch of men and women in Congress are going to come up with a strategy to confront that. Uh, we, we are being outcompeted in a dramatic way on the world stage. And, and, and we're not equipped as a group of folks that are a little long of tooth uh, to come up with something that's so comprehensive that we're going to push back in a positive way and, and, and assert our, our, our leadership in the world. And so I wonder, what do we do? Uh, how would you suggest that, that we develop the kind of comprehensive approach and the, the decisions on where to invest money and how much to invest to counter what China's doing around the world? Because at this stage, we're highly reactive and frankly, uh, for the last uh, decade or so, we're losing pretty badly. So I'm going to make one quick point, and then please, everybody else, jump in. And that is, I think, you know, we have to have our own vision. We have to have our own vision for what uh, the United States' its place is going to be in the world and for what the world's going to look like in 2049. And then we have to structure down from that. And then we have to work with our allies to realize that vision. Because I think you're right. Otherwise, we end up simply responding to the thousand different initiatives that China is putting forth. Uh, and so even to say about strategic competition with China, really, it should be about, you know, what does the United States want this world to look like in 2050? And how are we going to get there? I think that's how we have to approach this. Thank you. The other members are ha happy to have you comment. So I think, so, uh, sorry, Mr. Khan, go ahead, please. Yeah, so within the technology domain, I think China still recognizes that with respect to certain high-end technology supply chains, um, semiconductors being one of them, they're actually still relatively dependent on the United States and allies. Um, that might not uh, remain the case uh, in the years ahead, but uh, they're investing quite heavily to, to hopefully gain technology independence in uh, some of those domains. They're trying to localize supply chains. And so whatever we can do in our technology strategy, kind of maintain that leverage that we have now, will have huge uh, geopolitical and strategic relevance in the years ahead. Thank you. And from the military perspective, I think that um, it, it is definitely going to have to be a team effort. We're, you know, we're gonna have to be a, an association of like-minded democracies uh, and nations that are gonna have to band together ever tighter in order to, to counteract Chinese military power in the region and, in, and further abroad. I point out that from a military perspective, China's not really trying all that hard yet. I mean, they're, they're uh, est outside estimates, not theirs, I never believe theirs, but outside estimates of their uh, military spending is less than 2% of GDP. So they're not really quite breaking a sweat yet. 
uh, which means we're going to it's going to take greater involvement contribution both in terms of perspectives provided uh, strategies considered and just just shoulders put to the wheel to, to make it to be able to succeed in the long run thank you my time is up thank you senator murphy uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. This has uh, been incredibly informative, a uh, fantastic panel. Thanks for taking the time with us. Uh, I want to build upon Senator Romney's uh, questions regarding the scope of Chinese economic development efforts and just note that we have uh, essentially uh, voluntarily put one hand behind our back. We have an international development finance bank, one that is um, more nimble and more comprehensive today, thanks to efforts of Congress to establish the, the, the DFC. Um, but its cap is around $60 billion, whereas the Chinese Development Bank's overall portfolio today is $1.3 trillion. Uh, and so if we don't start getting in the international economic uh, development game, we, at the very least with the capacities that we have today, um, then there is absolutely no way to be able to meet China where they are. Um, and so I wanted to ask th that question about um, whether the DFC is the proper entity um, to um, be able to compete internationally for development pro finance projects, whether you think uh, that we need some new special purpose vehicle. Uh, and then to ask about you know, this question of uh, how we can better integrate with our European partners. Um, uh, you know, there's no effective China strategy that doesn't involve very close cooperation with Europe, and these development finance projects um, can be much more effective if they are done jointly with European partners. So I uh, wanted to open up that line of questioning to the panel. Okay, so let me start, I guess. Um, so I, I think the Development Finance Corporation was a terrific innovation. Um, you know, some people have proposed uh, that perhaps there should be another one that's explicitly uh, devoted to technology, uh, so that you know, Development Finance Corporation can focus on the harder infrastructure, and then we can have one that you know deals with uh, technology infrastructure. Uh, so we would need more investment. But obviously, you're right. We need to partner with uh, you know Asian allies and European allies. Um, you know, Europeans uh, are concerned about uh, China's inroads within Europe. Uh, in particular, they also have their own, you know, Asian connectivity strategy that they've talked about. Uh, but my experience in, in, in dealing with the Europeans is that they um, have a less, um, less of a threat perception uh, when it comes to China than our Asian partners. Uh, and so they're a little bit slower off the mark. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't consider, con you know, continue to try to work with them. Um, but I, I do think that they are not quite as invested um, in, in terms of pushing back against China. Uh, they don't have the same degree of threat perception, I think, as the United States and, and our Asian partners. So um, I'm all for cooperating with Europe. I just think it will be more difficult um, uh, than, than not with some of the major economies. UK may be an exception, but I think France and Britain in particular are a little bit dragging their heels. Um, Elizabeth, let me follow up uh, with a question um, about our diplomatic efforts. Um, last year was the first year that China had more diplomatic posts around the world than the United States did. Um, and I have conveyed a few times in, during the committee's proceedings a, a story from uh, a recent trip I took to Dublin at the exact moment that they were um, going through a tender for a 5G contract. Um, our embassy there noted that the Chinese embassy had swelled in personnel 
um, that not coincidental to this private sector contract tender, um, Chinese diplomats had all of a sudden shown up to make the case. We have no capacity to um, to do that, nor do we frankly have any strategy that would involve integration of U.S. diplomats with private sector contracts in any meaningful way. Um, a group of us yesterday proposed a pretty dramatic increase in just the size of the U.S. diplomatic corps, in part to be more nimble uh, in order to support private sector efforts to compete with China around the world. Um, what do you make of China's investment in diplomacy posts, and um, is it necessary for us to keep up? Absolutely. And, and again, it speaks to that sort of strategic um, and multi-level, multi-domain um, approach that I mentioned. China, you know, basically grasps everybody and deploys them toward a single objective, as you point out. So their embassy people become involved in, you know, pushing for Huawei. Uh, they'll have, you know, they'll fund universities uh, to do, you know, studies on the Belt and Road and provide students to, on the Digital Road, provide scholarships for students to come back for the best essays that talk about why it works. You're right, we're not going to compete. But I will say, I did um, research in Greece, and, and I will say that the American ambassador there, you know, he brought, uh, they hosted the American uh, pavilion. It was a year of the United States when he was there. He brought American companies like Google and others, um, and they did sort of uh, incubator things and innovation workshops. Uh, and I, everywhere I went in Greece, people talked about how effective that diplomacy was. Secretary Pompeo visited once, if not twice, um, the head of the Development Finance Corporation uh, went to Greece, and all of a sudden, you know, Greece, which had two pilot projects on on Huawei underway, you know, now is not going to use Huawei in its 5G infrastructure moving forward. Uh, so I think it's uh, enormously important to have uh, a strong uh, diplomatic presence that's capable of understanding what's going on in the ground and to bring in, you know, the, the firepower from Washington uh, when needed and also from the It's a good reminder that diplomacy is both about quantity and quality. Uh, Ambassador Pyatt is truly exceptional and we can learn from his efforts in Greece. Uh, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Senator Young. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, ranking member, and and I and I thank our witnesses very much, Mr. Khan. You you highlighted in your testimony the ways in which China is pulling ahead in this technological competition with the United States, and that it is critically important for us to take action to keep up. I wholeheartedly agree with this concern. I believe that we need to recognize that in order to compete with China, we mustn't ignore America's unprecedented capacity for innovation. We've done this successfully in the past, of course, as a country, most notably during the Cold War. In the 20th century, the United States led the world with investments in science and technology and infrastructure that would highlight the crucial role of the federal government in catalyzing innovation in national defense, economic security, and American prosperity. The Apollo program may be one of the greatest examples. In response to Sputnik, the federal government spent $140 billion uh, in today's dollars to land a man on the moon and to win the space race. The success of NASA would lead to spinoffs and hundreds of new products, new industries, and American leadership in aerospace itself. By 2018, U.S. dominance in this aerospace sector contributed $2.3 trillion in GDP to the U.S. economy. 
including $143 billion in exports annually, more than the entire investment to put a man on the moon over a decade. I believe we're staring at another Sputnik moment, only this time with China's investments in research into emerging technologies. Technologies that have the power to, to dramatically reshape our world, especially if they're developed by the authoritarian regime in Beijing. This is why I'm working on bipartisan legislation, uh, the Endless Frontier Act, to confront this challenge head on, invest in R&D, keep America in our leadership position, in, in short. The bill focuses $100 billion investment uh, in research and development over five years on 10 key emerging technologies, including the two you highlighted in your testimony, artificial intelligence and semiconductors. Recognizing and embracing the global challenge that China presents, these funds would be used to crowd in the expertise of both U.S. private industry and also crowd in the expertise and capital of our global partners and allies. I would note that the, uh, the model I favor to scale up proven technologies uh, would, would be the, uh, the very DFC-like structure just endorsed by Dr. Economy. I believe the time's right to get this done and I look forward to the Senate considering this issue in coming weeks. Mr. Khan, what are the risks to the United States if we are not successful in this competition over technology with China? Yeah, Senator, first, I'd just like to note that um, I agree wholeheartedly with your uh, characterization of uh, China's challenge to U.S. technology leadership as really a Sputnik moment. We really should be uh, increasing R&D uh, at the federal level quite substantially. You look at the numbers over the last few decades and the percentage of GDP we're spending on R&D um, has continually declined. And it's really now the time uh, that we should be looking to stabilize that and perhaps increase it. And the federal government is has a unique role in uh, funding pre-competitive breakthrough research that uh, industry is not always well-placed uh, to consider. And if, if we don't do this, um, you know, traditional technology paradigms, uh, they're going to slow down. You know, people talk about that in semiconductors. Um, Moore's Law, which is this um, observed law of progress with computer chips, um, without basic investments, we probably are going to start seeing slow, slow progress. And in a time of slow progress, that means competitors can catch up, um, and, and China in particular. And so um, if technology leadership um, is going to be a key piece um, of, of overall strategic relevance in the long term, then we have to keep investing and running faster than China um, in order to, to maintain that leadership. Um, and at the same time, we do have to work with allies given the scale of these challenges. Yes. So, Mr. Khan, I, I'm grateful for the response. Let, let me just follow up on a thread there. You talked about the importance of, of, of federal investment. Uh, I, I would expand that paired with uh, whatever monies we can get from the private sector, uh, as, as well as partner and allied countries and, and, and so forth. Um, why can't the market alone take care of this? Is it because, and I'll, I'll volunteer to you my understanding of it, it's because venture capital venture capital uh, will, will not invest in technologies that aren't entirely proven or don't have uh, a strong record of being proven. It's too speculative. And the time horizon for a return on investment is too long. And the spillover benefits 
that are realized in terms of national security and in in our, our collective benefits aren't wouldn't be captured in terms of the return on investment for venture capital so that that initial investment would not be possible and then um, as it relates to scaling, which is where the real money is ultimately required, you need a DFC-like structure or some other federal construct uh, to, to help scale proven technologies because private equity doesn't do this. Private equity, mm-hmm. instead, they, they identify existing proven business models and they go in, as Mitt Romney can tell you, he's worked in this space, and, 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 and um, they, they prove they will optimize existing models and squeeze more value out of them. So um, is it that reason uh, or, or are there other reasons why federal investment pre-market in, in technologies as opposed to just hard science are required here? Yes, Senator, I think you're absolutely right to point out time horizons as, as a big piece of the issue, um, also spillovers as well. I think in some uh, kind of mature industry areas, um, it's also easier for the industry to set a target in a known paradigm. But when you're talking about the next technology paradigm, there could be 20 different things that are going to be important. Um, and industry isn't always going to be focused on that. In fact, that technology could disrupt existing industry. Um, so that's uh, a big risk. I guess a few decades ago um, in America, it was a time of the dominance of the corporate research lab. So that kind of had um, a similar place where they were able to have very long time horizons. But right now that model is less common in industry. And I do think the federal government can fill that role of long-term investment that really like prioritizes wide spillovers to the broader economy. Yeah. I'm over my time. I apologize, Chairman. Thank you so much to all our witnesses. Senator Van Hollen. Senator Van Halen, I believe you're muted. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, and uh, great hearing. I want to thank all the witnesses uh, testifying today. Uh, I do believe we have a, a dangerous misalignment between the nature of our foreign policy challenges uh, today and our current strategy and resources for meeting them. And I was pleased to join with Senator Murphy and some of our House colleagues uh, yesterday. Uh, in proposing uh, changes to our foreign affairs budget, including uh, significantly increasing the DFC, uh, which has been mentioned, but also providing more of a diplomatic surge uh, to counter China's uh, global initiatives to export their model and also meet other uh, foreign policy challenges. I do want to salute the Biden administration uh, for their action today uh, in sanctioning 24 officials from China and Hong Kong for their crackdown on democracy and human rights uh, in Hong Kong uh, based on a a bipartisan bill uh, Congress passed uh, last year. Uh, But I agree with Dr. Economy uh, that uh, those measures are much more effective if taken in concert um, with a multiplier effect uh, with our allies and partners around the world. That's true whether you're talking about human rights or the other major challenges uh, before us. I agree with Senator Young and others uh, who said we need a major sort of um, Apollo program when it comes to our investment in these cutting edge uh, technologies, uh, given China's very expressly stated goals around the China 2025 agenda. Uh, So, Dr. Economy, there have been lots of talk about how we need to work with our democratic partners and allies around the world in terms of organizing some kind of strategy uh, to counter uh, China's 
moves around the world to export uh, its model, to leverage uh, some of its um, unfair economic uh, practices. Uh, there's been talk of you know, techno-democracies versus techno-autocracies, many different lenses through which we could view this. Here, here's my question. I'm trying to boil down these concepts into specific actions. So if you were the Secretary of State right now, and you were sitting down with the heads of state of our partners and allies around the world, what specific actions would you say we should take today, as specific as you can, in laying out a strategy to bring democracies together uh, to counter uh, some of China's actions? And thank you for all your good work in this area over many years. Uh, so thank you, uh, Senator Van Hollen. You know, look, I think um, approach to China has to happen at two levels. One is the defensive strategy and one is the offensive strategy. Uh, and the defensive one is, you know, looking across each one of those domains that I mentioned from, you know, China's, uh, you know, reunification strategy to the Asia Pacific region, out through the Belt and Road and up and through global governance institutions. So it matters that we coordinate policy in each one of those areas. For example, in global governance institutions, uh, you know, we need to look, we need to coordinate, for example, in the OECD to uh, develop consensus candidates to head, you know, UN agencies and programs, right? We need to work together to flood expert committees uh, with, uh, you know, in the technical standards uh, areas where China has been doing that and, and taking control of these committees. So in each one of those domains, uh, you know, we need to have a coordinated strategy to push back and we can identify those Chinese policies and push back against them. Beyond that, however, again, I'll go back to, to my you know, last recommendation, which is you know, we need a, a coordinated um, effort uh, to bring a vision uh, that's rooted in democratic values, right? that addresses the kinds of issues that uh, the Biden administration has laid out, corruption, the cyber and climate, uh, through into the developing world. Right? It cannot be all about just the allies uh, and our partners. We need to engage the rest of the world. And how do we get buy-in from those countries into the liberal international order, into the vision you know, that we believe sustains uh, the rules-based order? And so for me, the biggest and most important thing that uh, you know, the United States and its allies can do is to think through a comprehensive initiative, again, rooted in our values and our partnerships, that brings together the economic development uh, needs of, of the uh, rest of the world in a sustainable uh, way and brings innovation to these economies. I think that's the way that we actually counter China. I appreciate that. I, I see my time is um, already out, so I will just uh, follow up uh, with the other, other witnesses uh, separately. But thank, thank you all very much uh, for your good guidance and counsel. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Senator Haggerty, I believe you're muted. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch. Uh, I appreciate this very informative hearing that you've organized, and I want to thank all of our witnesses as well. I'd like to turn our discussion to an area where we've had tremendous progress, frankly, since 2004, and I put a lot of effort on my own behalf into this area, and that's our cooperation in the countries known as the Quad, our allies Japan, India, and Australia. Uh, this cooperation, uh, I think, can have a great impact on our relationship with China. 
uh, we've seen great progress, particularly accelerating over the past several years. And I'm very pleased to see the Biden administration continue a focus on the Quad. In fact, there was a leaders meeting that took place just this past Friday uh, between our president and his counterparts in Japan, Australia, and India. I'd like to open the question to the group. Uh, given our progress to date, what new milestones can you uh, offer for cooperation with our Quad partners? And the second part of the question is uh, whether there might be other nations that we should include in this cooperative effort. Perhaps I'll first ask Dr. Economy. I wanted to give somebody else a, a chance to 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 start I'm off. Picking on you, Elizabeth. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, it, it's okay. I mean, to be to let me take the second part of your um your your question first, and that is, uh, you know, are there other nations? I mean, I think um, there are a lot of opportunities to engage uh, other countries, you know, one by one uh, with the Quad, um, and I also think. Uh, NATO has expressed, uh, the General Secretary of NATO has expressed a lot of interest in uh, expanding cooperation uh, in the Asia-Pacific on cyber issues, on space issues. And so I could see some, uh, you know, partnership between the Quad and NATO uh, developing, uh, you know, in the future. You know, in terms of the issues that uh, the Quad should um, should look at, uh, you know, moving forward, I, mean, I think that basically what we're you know, hoping for is that the Quad is going to become the foundation, uh, you know, for the entire Asia Pacific region uh, in terms of maintaining freedom of navigation and free trade uh, and, you know, better human rights and governance practices. So I think initiatives that reflect those basic principles are what uh, we would want to see. And I could offer some suggestions, but I, I want to give some time to other people who have some concrete ideas. Please. Thank you. So from a uh... Uh, from a military perspective, certainly the ever closer quad engagement is is very uh, good to see. Uh, I mean, it, particularly when I see that the greatest now, you know, I'm a former naval officer, so I tend to see yes. things perhaps from a maritime perspective. But it seems like the greatest challenge we're going to see worldwide is it, to to a fair, pretty large extent, going to be a maritime one. That is China, as China somewhat understandably tries to um, develop the ability to really no kidding secure its sea lines of communication against. In the case of a military conflict, that's going to result in development like we haven't seen in quite some time. And all the Quad nations are maritime nations. And I think a lot, keeping moving along those lines of um, like-minded nations who are interested in free trade and open ec economic development, because you know, we have to remember that the, the world as we know it has, uh, you know, worldwide, the worldwide global commons Please. has been in the caring hands of uh, either us or prior to us, um, the Royal Navy, for the previous several hundred years. We have not seen a time period uh, where, you, where, where we have allowed an authoritarian, uh, collectively have allowed an authoritarian nation uh, like China to gain control of the global commons. So any nation that's interested in making sure that doesn't happen should be somebody who uh, would be helpful to have on board and achieve ever closer collaboration. Thank you. So I'd just like to add from uh, the perspective of uh, technology diplomacy, um, it's critical to, to partner with a lot of the key high technology producing nations in the region. Um, that includes Korea and Singapore at a minimum, but we also have to uh, be working with uh, many of the emerging economies in Southeast Asia who are going to become increasingly important for technology supply chains in the future. I appreciate that suggestion, Mr. Khan, and I, I must add that uh, the U.S. has a tremendous military presence, uh, a tremendous maritime presence in the region. And I also concur that we need to continue to cooperate with the other maritime nations in the area, but look for ways 
to cooperate and partner with other nations. And I particularly appreciate the direction you're taking us, Mr. Khan, in terms of finding ways to advance our technological cooperation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, Senator Cory Geider and I introduced uh, the landmark Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, which was passed into law in 2018, and has since provided $2.5 billion per year towards initiatives in the areas of security, economic development, human rights, and fighting corruption in the Indo-Pacific. These investments are meant to cement the United States' place in the Indo-Pacific, allowing us to work with our regional allies and partners to compete effectively with China and advance the mission of a free and open Indo-Pacific region. Uh, Dr. Economy, how do investments uh, such as those implemented through ARIA move the ball forward in terms of combating China's influence in the Indo-Pacific? Um, well, I think they're they're critical. Um, and, you know, I sit on the board of the Asia Foundation, for example, and so uh, the type of uh, grassroots uh, effort to uh, cement the rule of law, uh, to help uh, develop, you know, innovative ways uh, for uh, countries to uh, you know, uh, develop their export capabilities, um, uh, women's empowerment issues. I think all of these things are essential. Personally, what I think is missing uh, from this is uh, some form of a, of a branding initiative. And I, I worry sometimes that, uh, you know, we in the United States do a lot in terms of capacity building, which is essential. Um, and yet it, somehow it, it, it gets diluted uh, and there's not the same uh, sense of everything that the United States is bringing uh, to the table, uh, and even with our allies, uh, as you know, the, the Belt and Road Initiative. And so, to some extent, uh, I think what we really need to do is to have, you know, a comprehensive initiative, you know, with a name attached to it, uh, that sort of lays out very clearly for countries, this is what the United States is bringing to the table, uh, you know, in a, in a very sort of five points, this is our, our effort. So I think it's terrific. Uh, but I think we're missing an opportunity in terms of actually selling the United States uh, in some of these countries. Thank you. And Senator Gardner and I thought that uh, Asia Reassurance Initiative was a good headline, but you're right. Maybe we need to thank you. We, we have to do a better job. Uh, uh, I agree with you. Um, may I also, I'll also ask you, Dr. Economy, how do we balance you know, these interests? We, we need China on climate change on nuclear nonproliferation, but at the same time, uh, they're engaging in um, activities against the Uyghur and in Hong Kong that are absolutely reprehensible. So how do we balance those interests? Because clearly we need them on climate change, for example. Yeah, we need them, but you know, it's in their own interest uh, to respond to climate change. So I am firmly in the camp that says we should not be trading out any issues of importance to us to try to garner Chinese support on climate change. Uh, Xi Jinping has established himself ostensibly as a leader on the global stage on climate change. I think that gives us leverage to hold him to account. Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take advantage of opportunities to partner with China on climate change. When they emerge, we can help them make a more robust emissions trading system. We can, you know, model best behavior by, you know, setting out our benchmarks for how we're going to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. We can push them to green the Belt and Road Initiative. There's a lot that we can do. But one thing I don't ever want to see us do is trade out other priorities to get them on board. No, and I agree with you. I agree with you. But it's a delicate balance we have to strike. I agree with you. Um, and finally, Mr. Khan, on green infrastructure, uh, 
China is now manufacturing 95% of solar panels. What does what should the United States be doing in that one specific area of green energy in order for us to be competitive globally? So, Senator, I've not uh, investigated that issue uh, in much detail, but I, I absolutely think that should be an area that we're heavily investing in as well. Okay, great. Okay. Well, Dr. Economy, have you looked at that, the green energy gap that's been created in terms of production coming out of China? Right. I mean, look, China, beginning in 1992, you know, started uh, to encourage uh, foreign firms to invest uh, in China to, uh, you know, as a condition of, of uh, you know, their access to Chinese market, you know, they had to set up manufacturing plants in China. Uh, and slowly over that time, uh, it has captured the wind uh, and solar markets. Uh, there are other green technologies where I think we can still be, you know, leaders in smart grid technologies, et cetera. You know, they battery production. We need, you know, um, there are areas that we, you know, look, we have to set out the, the objectives, uh, you know, allow for some uh, support for Nobody these technologies. So they better book. Sorry. Yep. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, I see no other colleagues that have booked on, and unless someone is on, hasn't shown their video, and recognizing that there is a vote underway, uh, with the thanks of the committee to an incredible panel, we have different dimensions here that we've explored. We appreciate your insights. Uh, the record for this hearing shall continue to the close of business tomorrow for questions to be asked for the record. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.